Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and we're even more grateful that you're a part of our community. A couple reminders for you, but first, a really exciting update. If you've been around South Bend City Church in the month of July, you know that we were helping Jefferson Traditional Middle School stock their uniform closets. And we've asked you to either bring in uniforms or donate to the fund. And we're so thankful for the news that we're about to share with you right now. So there's a member of our community who came up to us at the beginning of this saying that they worked for a wholesaler. And that wholesaler has given freely 300 shirts to this cause. And then on top of that, the South Bend City Church community has given about $5,000 towards this fund. So basically what that means is that that $5,000 will be going towards pants and then also some spirit wear. Long story short, about 300 to 350 kids will have the opportunity to tap into the resources and the uniforms that happen because of your generosity. And we're so thankful for this gift that you've given, the time that you give us as a community, and when you jump into things like this. As always, if you're a part of South Bend City Church and would like to give financially, you can do so by going to southbendcitychurch.com. That's also in the show notes below. This helps us with our day-to-day operational costs, this general fund, and we're so thankful for the ways in which you continue to show up in those ways. Also wanted to remind you that August 20th is a Sabbath week for us this year. This means that we will not be gathering in person at Studebaker 112 and there will not be a podcast. We hope that this will be a day to relax and to spend some time doing things that fill your soul. This is a week that helps us honor our Fields Not Factories mantra, where we believe that rest is just as important as work, and we wanted to give our volunteers, our teams, and our community a week to breathe. One week after that, on August 27th, we have the opportunity to hear from Meredith Miller in our gatherings. But more than that, we have the opportunity to jump into a parenting workshop led by her right after those gatherings. Meredith is the author of Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Kid Doesn't Have to Heal From. And we'll be talking about what parenting a child's faith journey can look like when parents are still figuring out what faith looks like for them. So if faith is new to you or if you spent time deconstructing and or reconstructing, this will be a great afternoon for you to learn and ask questions. Registration is required and will include the workshop, lunch, and a copy of Meredith's book. And childcare will also be available for kids six months through fifth grade. And that will also include lunch. You can head over to the link in the show notes below to find out the different packages and the costs that are associated with each. And if cost would be an issue for you, there are scholarships available. So please email karen at southbendcitychurch.com if you would have a difficulty with these fees. We know that parenting can be difficult, especially in the context of faith. And so we hope that this weekend is meaningful for you, whether you're a parent, grandparent, guardian, family member, anyone who is responsible for kiddos in their life. We hope that this is a good morning for you. So we're in the middle of a series called Jesus Stories, where we've asked some guest teachers to pick a story about Jesus and maybe something that's surprising to them or working on them and to bring it to us. And so today we have the opportunity to hear from Mike Goldsworthy. Mike has been with us in the past and Mike is coming to us from Long Beach, California. And if you were in South Bend this weekend, you know that rain and 70 degrees was quite different for him. Although he's originally from Southern California, he loves coming back to South Bend And we get the opportunity to hear from him quite a bit. He's actually on our board. He's also been in vocational ministry for over 20 years. And he's just a really great pastor to pastors. We've learned so much from him, so much wisdom and insight and guidance as a community. And as he talks with communities like ours. We're so grateful that we get to hear from him. Let's join in with the rest of our community now. 
Friends, genuinely, it's such a gift for me to be with you all, even with that wet stuff coming out of the sky that like makes the air sticky and my glasses fog up. I don't understand this, but I love this place and I love this church. In fact, I want to make sure if some of you are newer to this church, I want to make sure you know this. I have an opportunity to get to travel around, to get to be with a lot of different kinds of churches and a lot of different kinds of like uh, functions with them. And this place is incredibly special. There's something really special that's happening here, so much so that I really do consider myself a long-distance part of this church. And so um, there's something really, really unique that's happening here. And so it's always for me a gift to get to be here, whether I get to be here on stage or whether I get to be um, worshiping with you all, like getting to be out there with you all, like in whatever capacity I get to be here, every time I'm here, it's a gift. And Jason had asked me to share in this series of stories about Jesus where he, he said like, hey, what is something that you are like engaging in in the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus that's like doing something in you right now, that it's like messing with you a bit right now? And I personally, I find myself drawn to the encounters that Jesus has where he disrupts what's normal or where he disrupts what's like expected of him. But it's not just the stories where he disrupts like what's normal and expected of him culturally in that place, in that time, in that moment, but it's also when he disrupts the things that I expect of him, because I've built the sort of construct of Jesus as I understand him, of what he's like, of how he'll respond, and what I find is that there are these moments, there are these times where he defies that, and I can try to fit Jesus into the box that I've created for him, or I can let it sort of like blow that apart and mess with me a bit. And the story that I want to look at today is a story that, that does that a bit because we all have these times where somebody does that to us. Wait, maybe you had a parent who was like the more stoic parent. And then that first time that they like, you saw them tear up a bit, that you're like, he has emotions. And, and like it messed with you. Like you didn't know, you didn't have a construct for that. Or, or maybe, maybe you have a, a partner who's always told you that they are a dog person. And one day they came home and they're like, look, I found this rescue kitten. And you're like, do I even know you? That it's like you've got this construct of who they are and they've, met, like they've kind of blown that out a bit. Or this morning when I came in, the first thing that Zach said to me is he looked at my shoes and he goes, Nikes, what happened to New Balance? Because apparently I've created the persona of a middle-aged dad, which I am, who wears new, like, it, and so there are these moments, these times where somebody like does something and it blows apart our construct of them. And the way that we've understood them has to shift a bit. We have to, this violates that and we have to allow for more room that they don't fit into that way that I've understood them. And, and so this moment that Jesus has, this encounter that he has, it's found in Matthew 26, does that a bit for me. Here, we're going to start in Matthew 26. The story starts in verse 6. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he's reclining at the table. And so this woman shows up, and she essentially, she crashes Jesus' dinner, which, by the way, is a dinner at the home of somebody who likely would have been ostracized, Simon the leper. Someone who you wouldn't be around, who you couldn't touch, you couldn't be in community with them, much less be in their home. You would never do that. 
And so some commentators trying to make sense of how Jesus as a rabbi would be in the home of, the, of a leper, some commentators have suggested, well, perhaps Simon has been healed of his leprosy. And that's the reason that Jesus could be in his home is because he's been healed of it and declared to be clean, and so he's able to be in community and people can be in contact with him. But even if that's the case, isn't it interesting that Simon still carries that stigma with him? that label that he will be known by and referred to really for as long as we read this account. Simon the leper, Simon the diseased, Simon the unclean. And so this account sets the context for this encounter that happens with a woman in, I think, a really seemingly intentional way. Because Jesus is sharing a meal in the home of a person who carries the mark of exclusion from the broader community And what Jesus does to him is he goes to him in his space, breaking all of the rules of social norms and what's like appropriate, the propriety of the day. And I wonder if that's some of what actually gives this woman the boldness to crash into that space where she's been seemingly potentially uninvited. That as Jesus would break the norms of his day and he would do it in a way where he's creating a picture of a new community that's in breaking into the world and he would put that on display as almost this like performance art where he would share these radically inclusive meals that when he did that, I wonder if that same sort of like norm breaking then begins to spread to others and that they begin to do that themselves. And so you begin to see this woman bearing the very essence of the thing that Jesus has done, the embodiment of the work that Jesus has been putting on display as she now also is breaking all kinds of social norms to do this thing that ends up seeming very shocking and absurd, to do this thing that is not what's supposed to happen, to go to a meal that she's not been invited into and to pour a jar of perfume on Jesus' head, And there's this detail that catches my eye whenever I read this account. It's a jar of expensive perfume. But actually, it's not just a jar of expensive perfume. It's a jar of very expensive perfume, which seems to be the thing that for the disciples is actually what causes the greatest scandal of this moment. In fact, here's, here's how the disciples react. It records it as saying this, that when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They, they were angry. And then they ask this, they, they say, why this waste? Or one translator translates to say, why this destruction? This jar of very expensive perfume, you've wasted it, you've essentially destroyed it, and here is why we care about that, verse Nine. Here's why we care about that. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, and the money could have been given to the poor. Now, sometimes with like historical insight, historical foresight, I'll look back at what the disciples have done, ways that they've reacted, and like we can have these moments where we're like, guys, like what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why are you saying these dumb things. We can look back at, it, at them with a bit of um, our own indignancy towards them. But this is one of those moments where like, I find myself empathizing with the disciples. That I'm like, yeah, I get this. I, I get this viewpoint. It makes sense to me. Let's do something practical with this. Let's do something pragmatic with it. In fact, let's not just do something practical and pragmatic. Let's do something good 
Let's do something that's pragmatically good, that has this good motive behind it. Let's do something like helping the poor, which as they're talking to Jesus, I could imagine them, if I were reading between the lines, I would insert them saying something like this. Hey, by the way, Jesus, remember, you just told us how deeply you care about that. Uh, remember, like Jesus, like if if we just turn a page to the left, because that's how I would talk to Jesus if you were talking to me, that like, hey, if I turn a page to the left and remember what you told me just to the left, uh, that was not funny. I did not try that at the last service. I won't try that ever again. <laughs> but if we just turn a page to the left, what we find is this parable that Jesus tells where he uses it as this way like to illustrate, to, to say like, care for like the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger, care for the ones who are unable to afford clothes and for the sick and for those in prison. And then he says this line that's this well-known line that many of us know. He says, because whatever you have done to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done to me. And so this is surely, obviously, an argument that the disciples make that Jesus can get behind An incredible expense has been wasted. It's been destroyed in a needless way. And let's just think practically for a moment. Let's get pragmatic about this. What could have been done with that same money that was wasted? What could have been done to care for the very people, Jesus, that you told us that we should care for in practical ways? It is a waste. I mean, who can argue with that? Well, Apparently, Jesus can, because here's how he responds. He says, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This woman with this jar of very expensive perfume, and she does the most irresponsible, the most reckless, most impractical thing that she could do with it. She breaks open the jar and pours all of it out at once, wasting it on Jesus' head all at once. In the midst of a scene where Jesus breaks the social norms and propriety of the day, she seemingly does the same thing as almost her own now act of performance art there. Her action and Jesus' response, like for me, it raises all kinds of questions and it creates all kinds of tension for me that aren't like super easily solved. Because it seems to me that in this moment, at least, Jesus seems entirely unconcerned with what's the most practical, pragmatic solution. He seems actually unconcerned with like what's the pragmatic good here. He tells them, in fact, stop bothering her because what she has done is beautiful. In fact, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, when he's commenting on this passage, one of the things that he would say is that she has done an act of needless beauty. And I love that line, an act of needless beauty. Because in some ways, doesn't that describe all beauty is that it's a bit needless. Uh, Like Oscar Wilde famously said, all art is quite useless. I I mean, like, Like, do you need those paintings that are covering the walls at the Art Institute of Chicago? Do you need them? Do you you need these lights with this, like, interesting design? Like, let's be pragmatic for a moment. Couldn't we, like, get rid of these and just have, like, the cheap fluorescence going in here? Like, do we actually need these lights? Like, 
or the discussion that happens about once a month at my house. Do we actually need another houseplant? Like, do we need that? Do you need the flowers in that garden? Do, like, do you actually need that? Do you actually need, when you walk on campus at Notre Dame, do you need touchdown Jesus? Uh, yeah, somebody at the first service shouted yes also. I hear, I, I hear that yes. Uh, and in some ways, this is what beauty does at times, is it confronts us with something that maybe is a bit needless. It's certainly not pragmatic, and it forces us into a tension that's not easily solved when you start asking pragmatic questions of something that is apparently needless. I remember several years ago, I was on a trip to Bryce Canyon National Park, and if you don't know Bryce Canyon, it's one of the national parks in, in Utah, and what Bryce Canyon is most known for are these geological formations that are called hoodoos. And I was there, I was by myself, and I was going on a, on a camping and hiking trip there, and so I pull up to the canyon, and I get out of the car to go on my first hike, and I walk over to the edge of a cliff, because I'm going to walk down into this canyon, and I walk over to get this view of the canyon before I'm about to go down into it, and I see the site, I see the hoodoos for the first time, and I took this picture, here's, here's what I took when I first showed up there. And it's one of those pictures that, like, you know, you can't capture the experience that you had when you were there. But let me tell you a little bit of what it was like for me, is that I walked up to the edge, and I looked down. This is this iconic, like, uh, scene in, in Bryce Canyon of just all of the hoodoos. And I looked down, and I just gasped. And I was by myself, but I couldn't help but to just say out loud, I said, oh, Wow. I began walking down into the canyon, and a few miles into it, I started to be able to get close to the hoodoos, and I, and I wanted to be close to them. I wanted to see them up close because they were fascinating to me, and I was so intrigued by them. And when I got close to them, I, I, I saw this. This is one of the pictures that I took of what they began to look like up close, that there were these, these like unique formations. And as I saw them up close, I began looking at them, and I thought, surely some person must have created these. Like, surely, like, there seems to be some intentional design behind them. It seems to, like, like almost be like this cathedral-like rocks out in nature. And I began to wonder, just out of complete ignorance, I had no reason for wondering this, but I began to wonder, like, oh, could this perhaps have been the Native Americans who were here before, who had been living here in this place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years? And could this be, like, some sort of, like, cathedral in nature that they built? And I just began pondering what are all the possibilities of how these things are here and why they're here? And so I end my hike and I decide I need to go to the ranger station because I need to talk to somebody. I need to understand what these are. And I go in and, and I didn't actually know that they were called hoodoos. I find a ranger and, and I said to her, uh, I said, those rock like pillar things that are out there? And she goes, yeah, the hoodoos. And I said, yeah, um, can you tell me about them? Like, why are they there? How are they there? How did, how did they get there? And, and she said, they're actually formed through nature. She said, it's this really unique process that can only happen in a few places in the world. 
that there has to be just the right amount of freezing and just the right amount of thawing that then leads to another freeze that then leads to another thaw. It's a sort of like rhythm that has to happen. And she told me, she goes, and actually there has to be rainfall, but only enough rainfall that it'll sculpt the rocks in a certain way. If there is more rainfall than what there actually is, then the rocks would get sculpted away much more and the, they wouldn't be there in this way. And so you need some rain, but not too much rain. You need freezing and thawing to happen in this sort of like rhythmic thing, and it only occurs in a few places in the world, and Bryce Canyon is the most prolific place of all of them. And when she was telling me that, I began to think about, I began to think about other places that I've got to experience, other places that um, these sort of like unique things that happen, it, it takes hundreds of years, hundreds of years of that freezing and thawing to happen in Bryce Canyon. And I thought of other places where I've gotten to experience that sort of thing where maybe I'll show up and it's a national park or a state park or something, and somebody has put up some sort of sign to tell you, like, here is why this place is the way that it is. And then it will often describe some sort of pragmatic value that it provides, some utilitarian thing that it does. When I've gone to the Great Plains and I've been able to look out over them, that, that on that plaque it will talk about the way that they can affect the weather. It will talk about how it provides for uh, cattle and for grazing and for ranching and for farming. When I get to go to Yosemite out in my, towards my neck of the woods, one of my favorite places on earth, I try to go there at least once a year. And one of the things that Yosemite is known for is its great waterfalls. But the waterfalls at Yosemite, they feed the Merced River, which then in turn helps to provide drinking water throughout California, which we often desperately need. Or if you've ever gotten the chance, like I have uh, had the gift and the opportunity to get to do, to walk in a rainforest, and you'll see these incredible plants that you won't see anywhere else, incredible trees you won't see anywhere else, these insects and animals that are so unique and colorful and vibrant. But then what you learn is not only are they something beautiful to look at, but there's actually life-saving medications that are coming out of them and have been for hundreds of years. These sites that take your breath away also provide some sort of utilitarian purpose. They're not just beautiful to look at, they're also functional. They're also pragmatic. And so I asked the ranger, I said, these hoodoos, what purpose do they serve? What do they do? And she just looked at me and she said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> apparently, uh, uh, apparently this unique process that takes hundreds of years, that can only occur in these specific narrow conditions, in this specific narrow place, and it doesn't do anything, that their only purpose is for somebody like me to get out of the car, to walk up to the edge, to be so overwhelmed by them that you can only say, oh, wow, to want to then walk down miles to get closer to them, to be able to see them up close and to gaze at their beauty. Apparently, that is the only purpose that they serve. And I wonder if, what if sometimes the function of something is not what it can do and it's not what it can provide. What if sometimes it's just simply to create beauty? What if sometimes in our functional utilitarian bent, I wonder if in our good desire to serve a good pragmatic purpose, if we unintentionally strip some things of their soul? And, and I wonder if sometimes what I need, and maybe even what we need collectively, is at times to allow for beauty to serve as its own end, and for beauty to serve as its own purpose without having to do anything more than that, without having to be anything more than that. And I wonder if that's actually good for my soul, and I wonder if it's good for our collective soul when we do that.
It seems to me that the way that this sort of like tension between beauty and the pragmatic good, the way that it works itself out, seems to me as best as I can tell, as best as I've tried to work it out with other people and figure out like what does this mean in this community, in this place, it seems to me it's actually in a lot of ways very situational. Because what can happen to us, and, and this will happen oftentimes not only in our own lives, but it will happen in church communities and communities of faith is that what we begin to do is we have some pragmatic good that becomes our lens. It becomes the way that we view things and that everything has to sort of filter through that pragmatic good lens. And the value of a thing that we do, whether personally or corporately as a community of faith, is all about whether or not it serves that pragmatic good, whether or not it pushes that pragmatic good forward. Uh, Like for instance, in the kind of communities of faith that I had been a part of previously, that one of the things that would have been maybe the most driving pragmatic good in those spaces that had been our lens, uh, our thing that we filtered everything through, would have been evangelism. And what we meant in that context by evangelism was getting people to essentially say yes to Jesus is what we would say, to maybe pray a prayer, to get baptized, that there were more people who would then call themselves Christians tomorrow than did yesterday. And that was our pragmatic good. And so if something served that good, well, then the means by which we got there didn't matter as long as it served that good. The value of a thing was how well it made that happen. How well did this help evangelism happen? That makes it good or that makes it bad, how well it's helping that thing. And so have you ever experienced, like, Christian movies that are really bad That like if you have watched it, you're like, what was going on there? What has often happened in those movies is that they haven't made something to make it beautiful. They've made something to serve a pragmatic end. Here's what we want this thing to do. And when you take something that's supposed to create beauty and you try to shoehorn in a pragmatic good, what it ends up doing is it strips it of its soul, doesn't it? And it feels like there's something missing. It feels like there's something thin. And maybe you can't always put like words to it or like why that thing is the way that it is. But you know, there is something that was missing there and it wasn't good. What was, like, why is it like that? Well, because, because, because they couldn't allow for it to just be beauty. Now, as my faith has shifted and grown and expanded and changed, I find that it's often really easy to point at previous experiences and previous places and to paint that as bad guys and to feel good about where I'm at now. But in the same way that Jesus' stories were poking at me then, they should in the same way be doing that to me now and disrupting me now. And so I've wrestled through, like, what is, like, the pragmatic good lens that I will often live with now? And I think I think this might be at least one of the things that maybe some of us experience, especially for those of us who have become aware of the social constructs that we've been a part of perpetuating at times that have created injustice. Those of us who have grown up in church systems and environments that have been a part of perpetuating injustice or at the very least have been apathetic towards justice, we have become awakened, many of us, towards the need to correct that. And we see that as a part of the calling of the church, and it's good and right and true. The church should be doing those things, but I wonder what happens when that becomes our lens, that that's the pragmatic good that everything is valued against. Well, one of the things that starts happening is like some of the discussions that I'll be in with with pastors, 
where they're trying to figure out, like, well, what's the purpose of a gathering like this? Right? Like pastors having their kind of like existential questions in crisis where they're like, I bring people together every week on a Sunday. We have this sort of like rhythm and like, why do we do that? What's the purpose of that? And what can easily end up happening is that we end up having discussions of a pragmatic good lens with it. And one of the things I've seen that turn into is that the gathering of the church then is about sort of creating a, a sort of a, a community that is a rallying cry to empower and to like uh, help people move out to do work of justice, which is one of the byproducts of what should happen in this space. But if it's the driving thing of this space, we lose a little something because there's beauty that happens here that's far beyond just that. There's beauty that happens here when you show up in the space and you feel known and you feel seen and you feel valued. There's beauty that happens here when you show up and you've had this difficult week and somebody you know catches eyes with you and they walk over and you just embrace. There's something beautiful about that. There's something beautiful about like what is maybe one of the least pragmatic things that the church does when we sing together. Like, what a needless act of beauty. But it does something to you, doesn't it? it? Like, could you imagine what would happen in here to strip this place of all of its music? Like, it feels like there would be a loss. The soul would be a bit lost. There would be something that would be missing. We'd be deprived of something. And sometimes what we do is we create these lenses of a pragmatic good. And if it doesn't serve that end, then we don't value it and it's not good. But what if beauty is an end in and of itself? And what if beauty needs to exist and beauty we need to create space for? And beauty is actually a part of the calling of the church. What if that's actually something that's supposed to be there? There's this author and pastor, and really, really he's a theologian as well, named Brian Zond. He's out in Missouri. And in a lot of ways, he's been a mentor to a lot of like my contemporaries. For those of us who are like pastors around my generation who have had our own experiences of our faith growing and changing and expanding, and in some ways he's been, for some of us, mentor up close and some mentor up far, but he's written several books, and one of the books he titled after a line from Dostoevsky, it's called, Beauty Will Save the World. And there's this line in it that just kind of like haunts me a bit as I wrestle through this. Here's, here's what he would write. He says, failure to recognize worth and beauty independent from utilitarian function is symptomatic of an abject poverty of the soul. When worth and beauty can't exist as its own end, when it always has to serve some pragmatic purpose, however good that purpose is, it's an abject poverty of the soul. We're like missing something. That there's something that's there that, that, that like should be there, and it's not. And I've tried to work through like, well, what do I do with this? How do I sort of like work this out? How do, how do I make sense of where beauty and the pragmatic good like come into conflict with each other? And how do I make sense of that? And I don't think that there's a nice, neat, clean way to make sense of that. But there is a concept that I've learned from my Jewish sisters and brothers that have helped me figure out at least how to engage in it. And the concept is this. It's called Hidur Mitzvah. Hidur Mitzvah. And 
Hidur simply means to make something beautiful or to enhance something. Or, or one of my rabbi friends told me that she translates it as to make something aesthetically pleasing. Hidur and mitzvah, mitzvah means the commandments. And so what it essentially means is to take the commandments and don't just follow the commandment. When you follow the commandment, do it beautifully. Do it in a way that enhances it. Do it in a way that makes it something more. And there's all kinds of writing and all kinds of intricate details about like how do you do this and what does this look like, but it, it might look like a little something like this. Like they might say like when you are practicing Sabbath, which I know like we all, uh, like not only is a, maybe a part of the rhythm of some of your lives, but is a part of the rhythm of the church. They say when you're practicing Sabbath, to hidur mitzvah. And so what it might look like is if normally you buy kind of like the store brand dollar bread on Sabbath, you go and you buy like that nice artisan bread that's gonna like go bad in two days because it doesn't have all the preservatives that the other one does, but you're gonna buy that one. Or, or maybe if normally you light like the cheap candles in your house, maybe like the Target or dollar store candles in your house, but on Sabbath, what you do because of Hedurah Mitzvah is you pull out that bougie candle that you'll never tell your partner how much you spent on it because it's embarrassing. You pull that out. Or, or when you're eating a meal, you don't just use your common normal plate. You actually pull out the best china and you use that. You put flowers out on the table. Like you don't just do the command. Don't just do the thing that you're supposed to do. Don't just do the pragmatic utilitarian thing. You do it beautifully. And here's what many of them will say in their writings on this, is that the reason that you do that is because when you beautify the commandment, not only are you beautifying that act that you're doing, but you're also, in some teachings, you're beautifying the goodness and the glory of God. And in doing that, in the process of all that, you yourself are made beautiful. Because it does something to you. It does something to your soul when you do that. And I had, I had a lot of thoughts and examples about what it might look like for us to engage in this, to lean into Hadur Mitzvah and to pay attention to that. But I had an experience actually while I was here. We, were he we came a little early. I came with my daughter, Kate, and we came a bit early so that she could take a college visit. She's a junior, a college visit at Notre Dame. And so we, we did that, and then we got to go to a South Bend Cubs game on Friday night. And I had this experience of the South Bend Cubs game where I saw Hidur and Mitzvah being put on display. And actually, I told this story at the first service, and then what I learned, I talked about this young man, Daniel, and I learned that, um, that Daniel's a part of the community here. And I got to uh, chat with Daniel a little bit before service and make sure he's okay, that I shared my experience of what I, uh, happened at the Cubs game. And so we were there, and early on uh, in the game, towards the front end innings, they took a moment in between the innings. And they brought Daniel out, and they had this home run time. And maybe it's something that they always do, but it was a special, unique experience for me sitting in the fans while I was there. They talked about Daniel. They talked about his brain cancer and how he's cancer-free. They showed videos of Daniel uh, running uh, in like a, a track meet with a buddy. And then, and then the announcer gets on and does the announcement call for the home run and says, the bat's cracked, it's going, it's going, it's gone. And the stands begin to cheer. And Daniel, Daniel starts running down the first baseline where players are lined up along the first and third baseline and they're given high fives as he runs down there. And all of that was special and it was really moving. But then what got me and what got me starting to tear up 
was that the fireworks start going off. Like the home run fireworks. Where for me it was this moment where it was like they didn't need to do that. It was like this needless act of beauty. I was imagining that there's like some meeting that happens at some point that like, hey, when we do this and he runs around the bases, what if we have fireworks go off? And I could imagine that there's somebody in the room who has that pragmatic bent who says, oh, but do you know how much that would cost? Like, do you know what it costs us every time we set off fireworks? We got to find sponsors for that. And like, we got to do all these things. And I could imagine the pushback is, but yeah, but it would be so magical. And it was like this extra thing that was unnecessary, a needless act of beauty, a wasteful act of beauty that pushed it to this other kind of place. And I wonder, I wonder if this is what this looks like for you and I as we sit in the tension of places of the pragmatic good and what's beautiful. I wonder if we practice a bit of Hidur Mitzvah, if we begin asking questions about, like, what does it look like for me to parent, but to parent more beautifully? Well, what would it look like for me to do this thing at my work that I'm supposed to do, that I'm required to do, but to do it more beautifully? What would it look like for me to do this thing around the house that I always have to do? It's a part of my chores. It's a part of, like, adulting, a part of, like, taking care of the home. This is what we do. But what if I did it a little bit more beautifully? What would it look like to do it with Hadur Mitzvah? And so we asked that a little bit about this service this morning, about, like, what if instead of, like, me talking being the last taste in your mouth as you go out, we have a little bit of a Hadur Mitzvah and we have it be something more beautiful where we sing together, where we do this thing that could feel like a little bit needless and wasteful, like why do we do this? But we reflect on the beauty and the goodness of God and we remember that in doing the beautiful thing that we're glorifying the goodness and the beauty of God and that we ourselves are being made beautiful in the process. And so Zach and the team are gonna lead us in singing one last song together. We want to invite you to stand as you're able.
it up a little higher. All praises to the one who made it all, who made it all. All praises, all praises to the one who made it all and finds it and sing it one more time our praises close out our time together this morning, would you extend your hands to receive a blessing of benediction today? And so my sisters and brothers at South Bend City Church, may you experience times where Jesus breaks out of your construct of him. May your eyes be opened to the needless beauty that's already all around you. And as you find more beautiful ways to do the thing, May it stir something in your soul. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Amen. It's good to be with you all today.